Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Our scripture text is um, verses 7 through 11, but I'm going to go ahead and back up and read, starting at, um, at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Let's pray. Dear Father, we have the the deep privilege of reading and working through your word today. We don't take this lightly. Your word is a sharp sword, and it is a healing balm. It tears down, and it builds up. Please help us to see. Please help us to understand your message today. Your word is living and active, and we need to live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I want to make a slight modification to the, uh, to the title that's in your, in your bulletin. I think the title in the bulletin is The Goodness of the Law, but let's make it more personal. Let's make it more subjective. Knowing the goodness of the law, that's, that's what we want to talk about today. The law is good, and, and we'll see that. But I think that the Holy Spirit wants us at DCC to get this message today, to know that the law is good. What about you? Do you, do you know the law is good? I mean, academically, that's one sense. But what about emotionally? What about reflexively? I mean, like deep down. And if you're like most of us, you might be a little confused about the law. But if you were asked, do you think the law is good? Then you'd step back and you'd say, okay, I'm a reformed person. Um, Let me do a Google search and ask Siri or Alexa or whatever. And then you'd come up with an answer and you'd say, yeah, I, I believe the law is good. But Paul and Timothy don't seem to hesitate here. We know that the law is good. We're, we're a little hindered, though, in, in our day, and, and I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why I think that we're a little bit hindered in automatically, reflexingly saying that the law is good. First is our own reading of the Bible. You know, sometimes we, we pick up the Bible, we, we read it one chapter at a time, and one day the law seems to be presented in a positive light, and then maybe the next day or next week, next different part of the Bible, we might, we might read... And it seems that the law is presented in a negative light. So maybe our own reading that's sort of selective and, and out of context may lead us to have a little bit of a hesitation. So maybe your own Bible reading contributes to this. I, I, I hope that's not the case. I mean, we, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the, uh, the, the, the Word. And so we can, we can get the truth. 
We have access to the truth. So, so maybe your own Bible reading has not caused confusion for you. But if that's the case, then I would say you're better than most, even in Reformed circles. But the second thing that sort of hinders us from automatically, emotionally, thinking that the law is good is we have a lot of influences around us that, that bring us confusion. We talk a lot about dispensationalism, but because that has had a great effect on us in the church and how we think. And there's, there, there's also a different view of the law that's a little bit closer to home. I actually ran into this whenever we moved out to California. We had been in the Reformed Church for a couple years, and we went out to California, and uh, things are different in California. Rodney, be ready. Um, but this wasn't necessarily a, uh, what you would normally think. The, the churches that we were in had a little bit different view of the law. It was New Covenant theology that you, you may have heard from John Piper, and very godly, very um, prayerful wise men in the scriptures, but have a little bit of a different um, understanding of the law. And um, one of those guys is, is Douglas Moo. Again, a man that, that I have read, and I think he's a, he's a great exegete. Certainly knows Greek better than I. I got my grade back last week, and I got a B plus. So, um, but I want to read something from that, that he wrote. This is in this book, Four Views on Law and Gospel. So I'm going to open up to uh, this and just read a little bit about what he said. Again, godly man, brother in the Lord, but here's some of the things that he says. Such diverse statements about the Mosaic law have both fascinated and frustrated theologians since the inception of the church. And in no time has this been more the case than in the last two decades which have witnessed a remarkable resurgence of interest in the theology of the Mosaic Law. I will argue that the New Testament writers view the Mosaic Law within this salvation historical framework, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, and relegate it basically to the period of time before the coming of Christ. Specifically, I will argue that the Mosaic Law is basically confined to the old era that has come to fulfill its fulfillment in Christ. It is no longer, therefore, directly applicable to believers who live in the new era. That sounds pretty bad. It's, it's, I, I mean, if you would talk to them, they would, they would say, we believe in the law of Christ, and the law of Christ assumes the, the, the law of Moses. And um, now it's more personal. Now it's more written on the heart and these kinds of things. But the problem with that is it causes confusion. And Christ was clear on the law, I think. Every jot and every tittle, he's going to uphold it. And so these things are around us still today. And so I think those things cause confusion, even from conservative camps. And it disturbs me a little bit, because that has caused problems with the church. It's caused problems with with society. I think it's even hindered our evangelism. And certainly... um, God is not pleased whenever we are not precise about his law. But today, our passage, I think, brings us great hope. I'm, I'm excited about it. We can believe that the law is good if we use it lawfully. So there, there's a path to victory that's here. So don't get discouraged. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. And whatever God enables, or whatever he commands, he enables. So... You, we can do this. We can, we can figure out how to use the law lawfully. You don't need a seminary degree. You can come to the Bible itself, and the Bible is going to show us how to use the law lawfully. And we'll get a little bit of a taste of that today. A little bit of a taste. Okay, so we're going to dig into the text a little bit. We're going to start with verse 7, but I'm going to get a running start to it. So read with me in verse 5 up through verse 7. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. You know, to, to desire to be a, a teacher is a good thing. The scripture says that. 
Desiring to be a teacher of the law is a good thing, but it needs to come with understanding. And wrong teaching on the law, there's nothing new today. It was nothing new for, for Paul and Timothy, and it was nothing new for Jesus either. In fact, it seems to be worse in Jesus' day than it is today. By God's grace, and uh, we've come closer to the unity of the faith that Gary's been preaching on. But let's go back to that. Let's, I think it's going to be instructive. Turn with me back to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of those things that may have caused some confusion with you. It certainly has caused com- confusion in the evangelical sh- church. What are all these statements that Jesus said, but I say unto you? He mentions the law, he mentions something that's been said, and then he says, but I, but I say unto you. You, you. you may have thought that Jesus is changing something, or maybe he was filling in something that was missing, maybe, maybe um, doing something like that, but that's not the case at all. Really, here in the Sermon on the Mount, there are six statements of these, uh, you, you have heard, but I say to you. And uh, I'm just going to point them out. You can mark them with a pencil if you want. Verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, verse 38, and verse 43. Our family's been working on memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, some of us have got it further than others. But, but one of the things, though, if you just read it um, and don't take some time to reflect it, on it and handle it, it may seem like Jesus is, in fact, changing the law here, improving it or something like that. But, but actually, what Jesus is doing is he's correcting bad teaching of the law. Remember that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So I just want to give you a few things in looking at the, at the Sermon on the Mount of how we can use the law lawfully. Okay, first thing. Verse 1, Matthew 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. That's the audience. It's the multitude and it's the disciples. Later on, in other instances, it's going to be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But here, it's the multitudes and it's the disciples. And those people have been taught something. They aren't the teachers. These are the ones that have been taught something. So that's important to know. There's two parties here. So look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old. It could be by those of old, depending on the translation. But you see that there's, th- th- there's two parties that are involved here. You have heard that it was said to those of old. So somebody has been saying something, and you've heard it, and it's been, it's been said to you. So we're, we're talking about an oral tradition here. Also, look at what Jesus has just said in verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, okay, you people that have been taught by the scribes and Pharisees, you have to have more righteousness. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So there needs to be a correction here. So we, we, we also need to look at the, um, at the back bookend of this. Turn with me to chapter 7, verse 15. Now Jesus is going to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. And look what he says in verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do not men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And it, it goes on. But basically, this is a warning to make sure that you do not follow false teachers. So that starts at the beginning, and it's at the end. So that sort of gives us an idea of what's going on here. Now, with this information, I, I, I recommend that you go back sometime, especially you, you fathers, go back sometime and look at all of these you have heard, but I say to you, and evaluate them. And you will see that they are indeed corrections of bad teaching. Let me just give you one example. We don't have time to go through all of them. But just look at uh, verse 43. Chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, love your neighbor is from the Bible, but hate your enemy is not. Hate your enemy is not in the Bible. Vengeance is the Lord's. And so that's just one example of how, how you can look at it and handle the law lawfully. And it will, it will, it will increase your confidence. You won't believe that Christ is contradicting the law. I like what Bonson says. Christ does not get himself against the word of God written, but to the word of man spoken. That's what's going on there. His book um, on theonomy and Christian ethics has a chapter titled Correcting Phariseeism, and it will go through each one of these very simply, very clearly, and show us that Jesus never called the, the law bad. He called hypocritical appeal to the law bad. But when he says every jot and tittle, he's holding a very high regard for that. So we're talking about knowing that the law is good. Let's turn back to our primary chapter in First Timothy. Paul had told them that, they, that some had strayed from the purpose of the commandment. And the purpose of the commandment, right there in verse 5, is love from a pure heart. And so whenever we go and we, and we look at this section, we should be thinking about that. That is the purpose. That is what um, Paul has in mind to Timothy. Well, let's look at verse 8. But we know that the law is good. Again, I believe it's the Holy Spirit's purpose for us today, for DCC, is to know that the law is good. And we want to know it the way that Paul and Timothy knew it. So how do we do that? There's a couple of ways. First, God's word. We know the law is good by knowing the law very well. You see, both Paul and Timothy were very steeped in the scriptures. Paul was a Pharisee, and Timothy, I, lo I love this verse, I think you love it too, 2 Timothy 3.15, and, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy knew the scriptures well enough to know <laughs> he's wise into salvation. Also, Paul and Timothy have been together a lot. We saw that in the, in the last sermon. I know it's been a long time, but, but basically they were touring a lot. Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. They have taught this. Paul has taught them to it. It has come from the word itself. So that's the first thing, is to, is to know the law is good by knowing the law very well. Can we say along with the psalmist, that he shall be a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruits in his season, whose leaf does not whisper, wither, and whatever he does, he shall prosper. Can, can we say that we know the law that well? If not, then by God's grace, we can. Now, there are a number of, a number of statements in the Old Testament and the New Testament that say the law is good. It's not just here. It's actually all over. Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. 
For I would have not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Romans 7, 12, for the law is holy and the commandments holy and just and good. And this is a favorite of many of yours. I know it's a, it's, it's a favorite of ours. The law of the Lord is perfect from Psalm 19. Okay, so we know that the law is good by knowing the law very, very well. And second, we know that the law is good because God is good. This is what a, a theologian said, Herman Bovink. Every divine perfection is identical with God's being. He is what he has. God is light, God is love. Whatever God is, he is completely, simultaneously, consistently, perfectly, and eternally. God cannot be deprived of any of his perfections in any manner or degree without ceasing to be God. He is spirit, not composed of parts. God is one. He and his perfections are one. Thomas Manton, uh, the Puritan, said, sometimes God giveth no other account of his law but this, I am the Lord. That's the link. It's his word. And so we know that the law is good because God is good. Verse 8, we've only been in the first half of verse 8, but let's look at the second part. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We've talked a little bit about this. But this is interesting. We know that the law is good if we use it according to the law. Wait a minute. Is the law telling us how to use the law? Yes, it's going to. It's, and it's, it's throughout the whole Bible. We'll look at some of these today, but it's a lifelong um, project to, to find what the law says about the law. But right here in our sermon today, again, back to verse 5, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. So we need to keep the purpose in mind whenever we are looking at the law. The, the Word of God is telling us how to use the Word of God. Now this leads to some questions. I think it's important for us to ask some of these questions. What does it mean when the Bible says the law? What do we mean when we discuss the law? Well, I think one of the ways that we can understand the law and what it does, we'll get to that in in a little bit, is to understand that the Bible presents the law in terms of the one and the many. Okay, the, the whole and the parts. Thanksgiving dinner is one. Turkey, dressing, green bean casserole, cranberry sauce. Should I go on? Um, those are the parts. And uh, it is not contradictory to talk about the dinner at the same time as talking about the parts. You, you, you see, we, we're going, we use things this way, the whole and the parts, for different purposes. Thanksgiving is a date on the calendar, and it is a meal, and it is the act of giving thanks to God. Those things are not contradictory. And we will see that with the law, there is a wholeness to the law, and there are certain parts that contribute to that. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and I'll give you an example. Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to be going through quite a bit of scripture today. And we're going to be skimming a lot of scripture. I hope that's, that's okay, but we, we kind of have to do that for, for time's sake. Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is where the Ten Commandments are reviewed. Okay, so we know it. Exodus 20, and they're reviewed here, right, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So you can just skim over that and you can see the, the Ten Commandments and then an exhortation at the end of chapter 5. I want to read chapter 6. We're familiar with chapter 6 as homeschoolers, but we're familiar with some parts of it more than others. I want to read the first six verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is after, after the reviewing the Ten Commandments, okay? Now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are going to cross over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you 
and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and then your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Now in Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, this is where he went. He went for this one, and then he went to Leviticus chapter 19 for the, for the second greatest commandment. The point I want you to see is that there is benefit in a summary. There is parts and there is a whole to the law. I remember a number of, of years ago, Rodney and I were talking. I don't remember what the occasion was, but he told me that Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court Justice, was very successful in his academic um, endeavors because he mastered the art of summarizing. He would take a complex thing and then boil it down to some basic principles, and then he would work on it even more to get it down to something very simple. Comprehensive, but simple. And that way, he, he mastered the law. And in a way, that is what we have with law. Because if you can take it down from the Ten Commandments to two, and Paul actually took it down to one here in First Timothy. So it was, you know, Jesus said, love your God and love others. And Paul says it's love. So there is great benefit in doing this. And one of the things that you can do, if, if, it, go, if it comes down to a, summer, um, a summary of that, then you can see the purpose of it. You can see the purpose more clearly. And that's what Jesus showed us with that. So that's one way to keep the law lawfully, is to understand what, what does he summarize it in? That's a good way to keep it. Now there's, there's a one and a many, just a little bit more on, on the parts. In Matthew chapter five, which we just read, Jesus summed up the law as the first five books, the law and the prophets. Our confession says that the law is similarly comprehended in the Ten Commandments. I may not have said that word right. Summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments but also all of the commandments are law. When Christ gave us the great commission, all that I've commanded you, all of the commandments in that sense are law. This is important because when, when we are going to try to understand this a little bit more, we need to understand that there is a whole to the law and that there are parts to the law. So what is the law? It is the commandment of God and that there is one in a many. Now, we, we are familiar with the threefold use of the law, but I just want to review it. Maybe for some of you children, you know, we should consider that um, we made a pledge here to, to uh, instruct the children and bring them up. And so sometimes if you ever hear something in a sermon that, oh, we've heard this before, well, we shouldn't think that way. We, we, we need to be reminded. We, this is grace, gracious. But also consider the fact that maybe every week there's a new child that understands something. So there are three standard uses of the law. Bonson in his book, uh, By This Standard, has seven, I guess. I haven't read the book, that one. But in general, you have three. The first is to reveal sin. We can see that in Romans chapter, chapter three. The second is to restrain evil. And Calvin and Luther agreed on these first two. But then Calvin saw a third, and, and I believe that he's correct, to teach us God's will for our lives. One man summed it up this way. You can call these the pedagogic, I'm having a hard time with pronunciation. Pedagogy, use, teaching use, the political use, and the pious use. Okay, so the teaching, pointing us to Christ, the political use, restraining sin, and the pious use to help us to be more like Christ. Well, I want to look at a, a verse that is misused from Romans. 
It's uh, very close to what Gary was preaching on in the um, communion meditation. And the reason that I, I want to do that is to show you how things can be misused if we don't keep these things in mind, if we don't keep the one and the many in mind, if we don't keep certain purposes in mind. I have here my grandfather's Bible. It's his uh, Schofield Bible. And um, he was a teacher in the church and a godly man, and I, I believe he's in heaven now. And I don't know, I didn't talk to him much. I'm not sure what he, how much he believed about the, the notes in here. But I want to read something from here at the bottom of, of uh, Exodus, the study notes. The Christian is not under the conditional Mosaic covenant works, the law, but under the new covenant of grace. So that's the contrast. The Christian is not under the conditional Mosaic law, covenant of works, the law, but under the unconditional covenant of grace. Now, one, there's a number of, um, of verses here. The, the, main, the main verses, and you will always see this, are gonna come primarily from three books. It's gonna come from Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. Those are the, are, are, are the books that, um, that, that, that have different purposes of the law and cause confusion, and that's the case here. So I just want to turn there. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to go in a little bit of a strange order, so just hang with me here, okay? Chapter 6, verse 14. This is one of the main things that Schofield used. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Okay? So that's the pivot point that, that, that we want to work from. We don't have time to go through all the Romans. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of a summary so we can come into this in the right way, okay? Chapter 1 talks about the foolishness of men. Chapter 2 tells us that we need to have our hearts circumcised. Chapter 3 says that we are all under sin. Chapter 4 shows us that Abraham is justified by faith, and that's really the overall purpose of Romans is to show us that justification comes by faith alone. So that's chapter 4. Chapter 5 tells us that we were on the side of Adam, but once we are saved, we are now on the side of Christ. We are in Him. So that's the run-in. Let me just look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. With all that, okay, so... We're talking about the foolishness of men, heart circumcised, all are under sin. We have to be justified by faith. We were under Adam, now we're under Christ. Chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And that's the question. That's the question that Paul's going, going to answer. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of unrighteousness to God. Sorry, of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. I once thought that maybe this idea, the reformed idea, that what this means is that we're not under law as a form of condemnation. I wasn't really sure about that at first. But when you look at what Paul has been doing, what he, how he has been using the law here, He's showing us that the law is exposing 
our sin. Back at at, uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, for until the the law was sin in the world, but but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So the law is bringing to mind our sin. So all of this to say that it is a wrong contrast. It's a wrong contrast to contrast grace and law. It's proper contrast to contrast um, sin and grace. Pastor Kaiser did that in, in um, in our meal here. But law and grace are not opposed. The only way that law and grace are opposed is that, the, is that while we are under the law, we are dead. We are bound to sin. That's the master. <clears throat> you, you know what? We, we, have to go, we have to go a little bit further. Turn over to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Look at that. This is how we know, this is how the law tells us to handle the law lawfully. That word, or that phrase, you shall not covet, that's the moral law. And so we know that what Paul is talking about here is the conviction that comes from the lack of our ability to keep the moral law. He's not talking about um, law works in the Old Testament and grace in the New. At Thanksgiving, um, we had a cook-off. We had a bake-off. John Cole and Lydia decided both to bake pumpkin pies. And And I was the judge. And they blindfolded me and uh, put one piece, of, you, know, you know, put the, the thing on the fork. I took one piece, and then I took the other piece, and back and forth, and back and forth. They were, they were very close. I'm not going to tell you who won. You can ask them a little bit later. It was very close. We'll say that. But that was appropriate to, to compare pumpkin pie to pumpkin pie. But then they asked me to compare cherry pie to pumpkin pie. And I wouldn't do it. Because I just, they're, they're, they're different attributes. They're different um, quality systems. You, you understand what I'm saying, right? You can't really judge a, a, a pumpkin pie versus a cherry pie. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. We can't compare. You can't compare the way Schofield did. You cannot say that the Christian is not under the conditional mosaic covenant of works, the law, but under the new covenant condition of grace. Because what we just saw in Romans is that what we are seeing is that the law is pointing us to Christ. The law is gracious. The law is showing us our sin. And and Paul says, I'm very glad about this because on the contrary, I would not have known sin. That's what it's doing. So this is this is what we are, are learning about how to handle the law of God. Just in, in review, what, what did we do? We looked at how the law was being used in Romans. How was it being used? What's the purpose? And then we saw in 7-7 that this was the moral law. And so now that we know that Paul is talking about you cannot be saved through keeping the moral law. If we had time to go to Galatians... And Hebrews, we could do the same sort of thing because he also lists verses from Galatians and Hebrews. And it's still common today. It may still be common in your mind. But let me just give you sort of some, some summaries. If you go to Galatians, Galatians is primarily dealing with a wrong return to the ceremonial law. And you can get that from Galatians. You don't have to have a history lesson. I mean, it helps but you don't have to have a, a, um, a history lesson. You can get that from Galatians itself. And I can, I can show it to you if you, if, if, if you want. Hebrews is talking about the same type of thing. Um, a ceremonial sense, but this emphasis is on Christ and his sacrifice. 
on him as a great high priest. That's the contrast. When you keep these things in mind, and you go to Romans, or you go to Galatians, or you go to Hebrews, and you see these negative things about the law, if you know how it's being used, then you will walk away with saying, that's not negative, that's positive. What a great thing that we are not under the sacrificial system. What a great thing that Christ is our great high priest now. Okay? Let's go back to our passage. First Timothy. And we're going to read verses 9 and 10. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, from the, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the gospel of, my blessed, of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now, verses 9 and 10, we need to handle this properly. We need to keep in mind what, is, what are the purposes of the law when we approach this. And so let's just walk through this. There, there are really three interpretations of this phrase that the law is not made for a righteous person. In reform circles, there are three interpretations. The first one is that it could mean that the law as a whole, which includes the sacrificial system, was brought in to temporarily cover the sins and point to Jesus. Okay? Galatians 3.19 is along these lines. Let me just read Galatians 3.19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come, that's Christ, to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So Galatians primarily dealing with the sacrificial system and saying that that that, that system is pointing to Christ. And, and it was added because of transgressions. So it's a good case for that, right? Second interpretation. This is by Philip Graham Riken. I have his book uh, on uh, 1 Timothy. He, he thinks that it means to restrain sinners. Okay, so he's pointing more to the civil role of the law. And there's a very good argument for that because look at these sins in here. Lawless, insubordinate, ungodly sinners, unholy, profane, murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, ki- kidnappers. Okay, the, all of these things are, of course, rooted in the Ten Commandments, but they are civil um, punishments. These are things that, can, that, that if we have this law, then we can purge this from our land and, 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 and prevent it. So it's a very good case for that. So, so okay. Third, it could also be said that this list and this law being not made for a righteous person, could also mean that it convicts us us of our sin and leads us to Christ. Now, why would we say that? Well, let's read on. Let's read verses 12 through 15. This is Paul speaking. He's he's, he's given this list. He said, this law is not made for a righteous person. And 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 he starts here, verse 12. And I think Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are on, in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am chief. So there's a very strong case that when Paul is writing this, he's showing how that law is for an unrighteous person, and it led him to Christ. All very solid arguments for, for how this particular one is being used. You can maybe talk to the elders and, and, and maybe they have a good answer. My thought is that we just go with the text, that we be quite comfortable with the fact that it doesn't say that because there is a one and a many in the law. And we can rightly assume that the functions of the law are not going to contradict each other. So it's not necessarily, in all cases, an either or an or. See, because a ceremonial law will point to the need of a Savior. Even today, there's value in that. Calvin said that, that the ceremonial law is in force, it's just, or, or is, is, uh, is yeah, still in force, it's just not being executed because Christ executed it for us. So when we read the ceremonial law, we can, we can still get a lot of benefit from that because we see that Christ is the Lamb of God. So that's, that's still good today. A moral civil law will reduce lawlessness. So if it's, if it's a, a civil law, it's going to help the other two. It's going to point to Christ and it's going to help people be convicted of, of sin because they're going to see righteousness in the land. And if it's a moral law in the sense of convictions, then people are going to be saved and they're going to be living according to the law and therefore less civil problems and therefore more pointing to Christ. Do you see how this works together? Now there are other portions of Scripture. We read one today in Romans and there's One's in Galatians, one's in Hebrews, that are more direct and specific in a certain way to handle the law. But here, my thought is that we take the law in total and that we see the beauty of the unity of the law. We're talking about using the law according to the law. Verse 11 is our our last verse. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So we've talked about reasons to call the law good, but here is probably the best reason, because it is according to the gospel. I don't know if there's anything better than a qualifier of that. An old Puritan said, The law is a sharp needle that rips the fabric of us and pulls through the thread of the gospel. See, what this this is showing is that the gospel is not contrary to law. They work together. Bonson writes, in, five, in Matthew 5, 17, we see that Christ came to confirm and restore the full measure, intent, and purpose of the Old Testament law. He sees the whole process of revelation deposited in the Old Testament as finding its validation in Him, its actual embodiment. So think about it personally. Think about John chapter 1, the Word became flesh. Law and gospel can't be opposed to each other. Our confession, the Westminster Confession says this. This is just really beautiful. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The moral law, the civil law, sacrificial law, they sweetly comply with the gospel. And it's a shame that, that there are many people who don't see that. Dispensationalists today don't see it. The New Covenant theology doesn't see it as clearly. And according to Bonson, Lutherans, especially the modern Lutherans, don't see this. And it's a shame because the law is good 
And we want to see the law as good. And, and, and if we don't see law and gospel as, as part of a glorious connection, then it, it has social implications. It has implications for evangelism. Now we need to, we need to say like what Paul says. Thanks for the law. I'm a sinner. I need Christ. And we need that in our society as well. So as we sum up, the Holy Spirit's goal was for us to know that the law is good. That, that was his purpose for us today, I think. Please study the law with the one and the many in mind, okay? Because this, the Bible's not always going to say, this is how the law is being used here. There's a oneness to the law, and there's a specificness to the law. Go broad, go specific as you're looking through these things. Look for the clues in the text. We saw the clues in 1 Timothy. We saw the clues in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that helps us to understand what Christ is talking about. We saw the, cru- the clues in Romans 7 that is talking about the moral law. We don't have time to get into Galatians or Hebrews, but we could do the same thing. You can do the same thing. And the more you study that, the more you're going to be reflexively automatically saying the law is good. It does not save a man, but it shows him why he needs to be saved and how to walk after he is being saved. Jesus is our Lord. He is the good shepherd. His law leads us in the way everlasting. So his, his gospel is working together. So family, please, Please know that the law is good. And please use it lawfully. It's so beautiful to do that. It's so necessary to do that. It's necessary for individuals, for families, for societies, for church. And it's, it's so neat that the Bible, the law, tells us how to use the law lawfully. We don't have to go to something else. The scripture alone will tell us this. It is good, definitely, to see what other people have um, learned about this, what they say about this, faithful men, confessions and creeds. But we can study and know that the law is good. Emotionally, academically, every way. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we are so thankful that you have made your law understandable. We thank you for clearly showing us that it is good if we use it lawfully. We ask for your help through your spirit to find out how to use your law according to your design and your purpose. Thank you that your law and your gospel are with each other in such a sweet way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.